0: Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website www.thecritic.co.uk to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. In this edition, Professor Jeremy Black, author of A History of the British Isles, talks to the Critics' Deputy Editor Graham Stewart about the role of the Queen and the Queen Consort in British and European history. Professor Jeremy Black, uh, when we think of the Dark Ages, we would perhaps naturally assume that women weren't accorded senior roles in society. Uh, but actually, one of the figures we know uh, most, who, one of the figures who is most familiar to us from uh, the early years of the first millennium uh, is uh, Boadicea, Queen Boudicca. Um, what do we know about uh, the powers that were invested in women as heads of their tribe and subsequently heads of their nation?
1: Well, that's an excellent question. I'm not sure, incidentally, we would usually have the Dark Ages as going that far back. I think we'd call it late Iron Age Britain. But um, Boudicca's is an example. And indeed, the the Brigantes in northern England um, are another example uh, later that century. Um, One of the problems is that we know most essentially through hostile voices, uh, Roman historians, and that is not um, the best way to necessarily understand them. And indeed, I was thinking of the uh, Brigantes that um, this was discussed in my book on 18th century British historians or English historians I commented on one of them who wrote about the early history of northern England and he um, he commented on her and um, talked about the extent to which the Romans had spread stories about lasciviousness and so on and, and in order to disparage her because of course the Romans their emphasis was on male rulers and they classically most famously with Cleopatra queen of Egypt had a down on societies that put women forward. So I I, I don't really feel we know enough from sources that are inherent to those societies to comment much about it. And indeed, as we go on into the Dark Ages, um, we do know that there were females in prominent positions. We can think, for example, um, in the early ninth century, the so-called Lady of the Mercians, of course. um, We could think of um, uh, King Canute's wife. Um, we know that women were prominent. Um, I think it's fair to say that their position was generally marginal vis-a-vis uh, male rulers. Male rulers, of course, um, have the attributes of warriors, uh, which I think was a particularly distinctive role and also was linked to the extent as we were discussing last time in our comments on monarchy and religion, that the rulers as warriors were also the defenders of the church. and particularly so against pagans, including uh, Vikings initially before they converted. Um, So I think I would say that if we are looking at um, women rulers, um, really, although there are these earlier instances, we probably should start with um, Henry I's daughter, Matilda, and the war of succession, the war in which she is pitched against King Stephen. not least because that was a struggle about which quite a ma- quite an amount was written at the time by chroniclers.
0: Well that, in that period it of course is known as, as as the anarchy. Do you sense that the battle between Matilda's supporters and Stephen's supporters was really down to judgments on, on who could win who had the better uh, claims to legitimacy? Or were Stephen's supporters really motivated by a sense that we don't want Matilda because she's a woman?
1: Well, I certainly think her being a woman had a major uh, problem, was a major problem, but also, of course, an aspect of her being a woman and an aspect that was always significant when you were looking at female rulers, which was the extent to which um, there was the question of whom she was going to marry. Um, And I think that was very, very important because um, the, uh, the Count of Anjou, Geoffrey, her husband, um was unwelcome to quite a few of the Anglo-Norman uh, nobility um as far as the, the civil war itself is concerned I mean Matilda famously wasn't popular uh, with London which obviously affected her her uh, the way she was perceived the problem was neither monarch enjoyed clear success and one of the consequences of that is they found it hard to maintain um, support, the cohesion um, of the Anglo-Norman ruling uh, group. And indeed also, they were unable to demonstrate success, or clear success, either as warriors or in terms of the providential support of the church. I mean, Matilda kept in the struggle, that was impressive. It's interesting to note that King Stephen's wife, another Matilda, Plays, as it were, a heroic role when her cu- husband hits difficulties in that she continues the struggle. Um, so it's not the case that it's man versus woman, is some clear juxtaposition. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that Queen Matilda, not Stephen's wife, some of her major, well, her major supporters are male, uh, Robert Earl of Gloucester, for example. Um, Her husband, Geoffrey, subsequently her son, the future Henry II, whilst King Stephen's, as it were, heroic supporter is his wife. So I wouldn't like to have it as a clear male versus female in in sort of uh, consideration. But what I think it does bring out is the extent to which, however legitimate, a female ruler was, and to an extent in that period, to an extent with the Norman rulers, there is a degree to which the monarch designates their successor um, and, of course, a process eased by the fact that you can divide uh, Normandy from England, um, as you see, for example, with the inheritance of William I. So a monarch designates their successor, which means you're not inherently having to have a male ruler, but uh, nevertheless, the nature of the job, the nature of the post, the nature of the responsibilities mean that they are more conducive for male candidates.
0: It's an interesting point that you raise about, worries about Matilda's husband and um, uh, Geoffrey, and and what uh, power he would have. And and there were similar problems, we'll come to it later, but uh, with uh, Queen Mary... um, Well, well, let's
1: come to uh, it now, because uh, many of these issues do leap the centuries. I mean, there was a comparable issue with Queen Mary, which we can talk about, but also, There was a comparable concern in the case of whom Queen Victoria was going to marry. And you might argue um, that the change that you see in the marital conventions of the royal family um, in the 20th century makes this less of an issue because a British monarch, if female, um, is not Uh, likely to marry another monarch, uh, uh, whom would be head of state of another country. Uh, But in the case of Queen Mary, just to remind listeners, uh, she was queen in her own right from uh, 1553 to 1558. She marries uh, King Philip II of Spain, uh, who of course is a close relative that goes without saying um and that um is contentious um leads to Wyatt's rising at uh, Thomas Wyatt, Wyatt's rising in Kent in 1554 precisely because it is seen as likely to affect the independence of England as well as the uh, issues of religion and foreign policy interestingly enough and Obviously, we tend, when we're talking about um, to England, to completely forget about Scotland. Uh, but in the case of Scotland, uh, you go back to the medieval period. Um, there is the issue, um, obviously, with the maid and her death, uh, and this call bringing forward the English claim to the succession uh, in the 1290s. Uh, there is then uh, the issue, of course, of the uh, ruling monarch um, uh, marrying first the king of France um, in that's uh, Mary Queen of Scots we're talking about in the 16th century, then after he dies, uh, marrying the uh, uh, again a cousin, Darnley. And then after he's murdered, um, uh, running off with the uh, her, her second husband's likely, um, likely uh, murderer, which does not, um, as it were, <laughs> endear her to her critics um, in, in Scotland. So there are practical problems. I mean, you could argue that Mary, Queen of Scots would have been in a happier position domestically by domestically, I mean, in terms of internal politics, if she hadn't. Um, had three successive partners but instead had followed as it were the position of Elizabeth Tudor.
0: Well what what was the both the the, the legal tradition we're not talking about something that's necessarily codified the legal tradition in terms of a queen in her own right and her choice of consort. I, I've seen you know documents when Mary Tudor was queen where it says she um, queen Mary and, and King Philip, so as if they are co-regents in the way in which William and Mary uh, were co-regents, but, but that isn't legally the case, or is it a case, of, you know, it, it, it wasn't the case in law, but it, but it was the, the case in reality, and, and therefore you, whoever you're married to, that person effectively, as, as the man, has, has, is perceived to have the stronger influence on the Queen.
1: Yes. Well, thank you. Can I just say for the benefit of, uh, of listeners, when you were referring to William and Mary, what we are meaning here is William III, um, uh, of William of Orange, and uh, his wife, Mary II, Um, who are monarchs from 1689 until the death of Mary of smallpox in 1694, whereupon William III continues to rule in his own right. So I just thought I'd better mention that. They are indeed, as you correctly say, constitutionally co-rulers in a way that had not been the case earlier. So, in other words, earlier, let us say Elizabeth I had got married, and after all, there were a number of suitors, um, including uh, the Duke de for example, um, a, a brother of the uh, of, of uh, three successive kings of <laughs> of France. Um, and I think I'm right in saying uh, there was talk potentially of. Um, uh, an Austrian Archduke. I can't remember whether that was Maximilian the chap that becomes Maximilian II. Um, At that stage, the supposition would be that yes, Elizabeth's role would be circumscribed by having a husband who would be a figure in international politics, but that in constitutional terms, England would remain a distinct unit and therefore, not bound by um, the, in inheritance terms, by the marriage. So that, as you correctly say, um, Philip of Spain, uh, when Mary dies in 1558, that's it. He has no claim on the situation in uh, England. And had, I mean, you know, there are examples, of course, in the accretion of territories by the Habsburgs in which such claims had arisen, but that was not the case in um, in the 1550s. So you are right that there is a tension between the constitutional um, assumption that any monarch, male or female, Uh, in no way represents a uh, limitation constitutionally uh, by their marital choice, or indeed their choice for no or or marriage. But you are also right that any monarch, male or female, by their marriage is assumed to have um, linkages. Now, um, we are talking about the way in which female monarchs would be assumed to have Uh, linkages because of their husbands, but it's worth bearing in mind that if you're looking at Henry VI, who marries Margaret of Anjou, there is an assumption uh, that this marriage is pushed through in order to ease relations with France in the latter stages of the Hundred Years' War. There is also the assumption, used by Yorkist critics around Richard, Duke of York, uh, that this represents an unwarranted degree of pro-French uh, influence over Henry VI, And I think both of those charges are justified. So a man's marriage can also compromise um, you and even as powerful a figure as Henry the who uh, was not exactly a pushover by any stretch of the imagination, there is no doubt that he was influenced to a degree um, by, I mean, he both influences, as it were, but is also influenced to a degree uh, by those whom he marries, and that is a long-standing convention. Um, I've just been reading the Grub Street Opera by Henry Fielding uh, last night, and this is a, a an opera burlesque opera of 1731. Um, in which it's uh, talking about a a family in England, um, but it is actually an analogy about the royal family, and it's making fun of the extent to which George II is pushed around by his wife, Queen Caroline. Um, So, you know, the notion that... that we are only talking about the female issue is one we have to be cautious, the issue of queens um, in their own right is one we have to be cautious about.
0: And with this role of queen concert, I mean, does it have any formal powers? And I'm thinking all the way, I mean, you mentioned Margaret of Anjou, Henry VI happened to be a a spiritual, weak monarch, um, and you know, In the middle of a of a dynastic civil war, the Wars of the Roses, in which Margaret of Anjou, as the much stronger figure, played a very leading uh, a leading role. But is it just a matter of the fact the queen consort has no powers unless the king um, assigns her particular authority to act on his behalf, or there is some reason why the king is incapacitated, as, as Henry VI, for example, uh, was incapacitated for part of his rule. Or is there anything that one can point to which says that it was expected that a queen consort would have certain powers?
1: Well, again, that's an excellent question. What I would argue is answer to that is we are talking about ad hoc situations. A female ruler is the... Sorry, a female character. Sorry, let's get this right. A queen is the obvious figure... Who is a consort is the obvious figure to consider as a regent if the queen is fit and able, and if the male is either unfit or, and indeed frequently happened, away for reasons of politics or campaigning. So that I've already mentioned um, George II's wife, Caroline, um, where George she never accompanies her husband um, on his trips to Hanover which I suppose is just as well, because on at least one of the trips whilst she's arrived alive, and probably two of them, he's having a relationship with Madame Vollmolden, and I think the Queen would have been in the way a bit. Um, But she in effect is running the government with the assistance of Sir Robert Walpole, running the government back in London in his lengthy absences. Now that is not a campaigning absence, that's an absence to go back uh, to the native Hanover, to be Kurfürst, Uh, elector and to enjoy the chase of animals and women. Um, But you get in the medieval period, you get um, instances of monarchs um, leaving London or leaving the centre of politics and governance and having to leave a regent-like figure. Um, But whatever is the formal process, the informal process is really crucial because it is the relationships, as indeed one's got with the sovereign, the relationship between the sovereign and the leading aristocracy aristocracy between the sovereign and their ministers, many of whom are among the ranks of the aristocracy. Um, These are crucial irrespective of whatever document has been drawn up. So we mentioned earlier that William III and uh, Mary II were in effect co-rulers from 1689 to 1694. That is true But I would argue that actually Mary II has less power than Queen Caroline did, even though Queen Caroline is not a co-ruler. So I think one has to be careful and vice versa, if you're thinking about it in terms of female rulers. I mean, one thinks, for example, of Queen Anne, um, who is Queen Mary II's younger sister. Queen Anne is sovereign in her own right. From 1702 to 1714. For her last uh, years she's a widow, um, but prior to that she's married to Prince George of Denmark, and I think it's fair to say that although Prince George is not the complete non-entity that he is sometimes portrayed as, nevertheless I, he is not a proto-Prince Albert in the making. Um, so, I think a lot of it does depend upon personality, but nobody would have known that. I mean, you know, in a way, uh, there are the two sisters. One of them marries William of Orange, the other one marries George of Denmark. They are both Protestant princelings. Uh, George is actually, um, in a way, in some respects, um, dynastically more senior because he is actually the son of a royal. Um, but I think it's fair to say that it would have been hard, you would have been hard pressed to have said that definitely one was going to be the stronger personality than the other. Um, Just as, I mean, if you want to use the half, the comparison of the half sisters, uh, Mary Tudor and Elizabeth Tudor. So I think personalities do come into it to a great extent. Again, in the 20th century, the contrast in terms of sobriety and sense of service between George VI who excels in both of those and Edward Eighth, who doesn't but they're both brothers.
0: Well um, uh, Mary Tudor Queen Mary I and her sister Elizabeth I both very strong personalities both both very very determined rulers. Um, did they can we say they they redefine the nature of queenship at all as a consequence of that or does it just come down to the the point you've really made that that it, you know circumstance and the nature of an individual character is all really in, in the defining of these roles The role is only defined by its occupant at the time
1: well that's excellent point i mean i think both i mean i'm i'm a great believer in the short term the ad hoc and the contingent so i would be naturally predisposed to take the latter view but if one wants to look at the former view, I think you could say that the potential of a stronger monarchical state uh, offered by Henry the Seventh and then Henry the Eighth, particularly with administrative strengthening, with Henry the taking over the you know the effective headship of the Church, etc., etc., is compromised by Edward the Sixth, who is too young and, you know, dies too soon. And then by Mary and Elizabeth. Now, I'm, you know, we don't, I I don't want to say it's compromised simply for those reasons. I mean, Henry VIII compromised his own position in an extent by taking part in expensive and to a degree unnecessary wars with France and Scotland in his later years, which meant that he had to sell most of his assets that he would gained from the dissolution of the monasteries, because it's very easy for me to make some sanctimonious remark to that effect. There's no way that a modern British government would ever take part in unnecessary wars and waste large sums of money. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> you at least are smiling at that. <laughs> um, but the... Um, but going back to the 16th century, I mean, you can broaden this ad hoc nature. You could say, as a parallel to what I'm talking about, that the potential of the Scottish monarchy created by James IV and James V was compromised to a degree by Mary, Queen of Scots. Or you could say, actually, what really made the difference was James the sixth going south in 1603 and Charles the first being such a twit. Um, Or or you could say, if we're looking at the French comparison and the French comparison is always um, interesting, that the uh, roles of both Catherine de' Medici and Marie de' Medici showed that um, women behind the scenes could be extraordinarily significant, even if they do not become, monarchs and I think that you know one has to allow for the role of contingency and I myself would be disinclined to take a view that female rulers necessarily weaken some of the situation. I mean the obvious example of that is um, 18th century Russia. 18th century Russia, has four sovereign Tsarinas. So in other words, Sorinas in their own right, not as a result of being married. Um, Catherine I, was, well, she's only in for a brief period, 1725 to 1727. But Anna is in from 1730 to 1740. Elizabeth is in from 1741 to 1762. And then after a brief interlude of um, of Peter Third, who is rapidly murdered, uh, his grieving widow, irony, um, Catherine II. Catherine the Great is monarch from 1762 to 1796. Now, I would not say that the fact that there are four sovereign czarinas weakened monarchy, and indeed, in comparison with Peter II, um, I, the little baby Ivan who's there between Anna and Elizabeth, Peter III, who's quite frankly a burke, and Paul I, another person who has to be murdered. Um, um, I wouldn't say the males are capable of providing anything in particular between um, uh, Peter the Great, Peter I, who dies in 1725, um, and Alexander, who comes in with the new century.
0: Mm. And I mean, France obviously has a long, uh, despite some influential queen consorts. Has a long line of, of male monarchs. Uh, the Habsburgs do as well until we come to Maria Theresa. How significant is Maria Theresa in, in both developing the role of queen and empress in Europe?
1: Right. Um, well, just again to the listeners, um, the Austrian Habsburg line uh, in 1740, runs out in the mail. Uh, Charles VI, the emperor, um, has uh, daughters, and he has tried to get most of the German princes to sign to, to sign up to what was known as the Pragmatic Sanction, which leaves his inheritance, the Austrian Habsburg dominions, to his elder daughter uh, Maria Theresa. Um she cannot become Empress, uh, Holy Roman Empress, and in fact uh, never tries to. Um, and what happens is it all goes disastrously wrong. People that had signed up to uh, accept this immediately after he dies, the situation collapses. The War of the Austrian Succession is launched. Um, one of the rivals, uh, Karl Albrecht, uh, Charles Albert of Bavaria, becomes the Emperor. Charles VII in 1741, and then he dies in 45, and Maria Theresa's husband, Stephen Francis of Lorraine, is elected emperor, so that you have a situation thereafter until uh, she dies, which was in 1780, of Maria Theresa as sovereign, of the Austrian Habsburg Dominions, and first her husband, and then after he dies in 1765, her eldest son, uh, Joseph II, as Holy Roman Emperors. Um, I think it's fair to say that Maria Theresa is quite an effective figure actually. And in some respects, she's certainly more effective um, than uh, Francis Stephen, or Stephen, uh, let's get it right, yeah, Francis Stephen. And she's certainly more successful uh, than Joseph. Um, So I think Maria Theresa offers a degree of continuity and competence. Now, clearly there were criticisms made of her. Frederick the Great was never one to resist sticking the pen in um, in his correspondence, and Maria Theresa's devout Catholicism did not appeal to some of the uh, Enlightenment writers, uh, her rather traditional Catholicism. Uh, but I think she was quite an effective individual and she also had a skill um, in uh, picking good ministers and a skill in being willing herself to alter her foreign policies um, for what seemed to be uh, better, rela- better international partners. Um, so yes I would be reasonably uh reasonably impressed with Maria i mean it is interesting that in the 18th century a number of countries Portugal is another one um have reigning female monarchs um and some of them uh don't do too badly it's not that not all of them do well but some of them don't do too badly
0: and uh, coming back to the to the role of the consort. Marie Antoinette had to put up with a lot of uh, pretty misogynistic criticism, you know, claims, fanciful claims that, you know, she was in a lesbian affair. And, and, and um, the, the Empress Alexandra, Nicholas II's wife of Russia, similarly, uh, you know, being portrayed as being in a kind of psychosexual uh, relationship with Rasputin and so on. Is this an an ingrained level of misogyny that inevitably attracts itself to women as misogyny does? But, 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 or actually, should we just say that there were particular perceived weaknesses in these characters, which their enemies chose to exploit?
1: Well, you obviously read interesting history books, more interesting than the ones I write. Um, I'm not sure that women necessarily have to put up with accusations about lesbian affairs, etc. I don't think I don't recall Queen Victoria having to put up with that sort of thing. Oh, Anne and,
0: and did. And, and, yes, Anne did. The Duchess of Marlborough. Yes. Um,
1: let's, let's say this: that there was a, there is always in any political system criticism of the person at the top. And I think you could fairly, if you know, I'm sure you know, we live in a woke age and some somebody listening this could easily put together a list of misogynist comments about women that were made at the time. But you could also put together a list of hostile comments made at the time about, let's say, homosexual. Uh, Monarchs, male homosexual monarchs. You could put together a list of hostile comments made at the time about monarchs who allegedly didn't like war enough or monarchs who allegedly liked war too much. I've already been pretty disparaging about Charles I. I wasn't aware that I was doing so as part of some, you know, conspiracy, which would then mean that I would be, you know, designated in some listing of hostility towards uh, X, Y, or Z. I mean, I think it's fair to say that most monarchs were criticized at some stage or the other for many things, including, irrespective of their alleged personality, simple failure. Uh, But other things that tend to be criticised are extravagance, um, uh, favouritism, in other words, picking people that others didn't like. um, Whereas if they picked them themselves, they would no doubt have been, uh, you know, everybody would have said, what a prudent choice, Your Majesty. Um, So extravagance, favouritism, there are all sorts of reasons that people tend to have a go at monarchs for people of a relatively bla- or completely blameless personal life. George III, for example, gets, gets, got criticised for all sorts of things. So I don't think it's only women that get criticised, and you know, you commented on Queen Anne and the, um, the criticism that is applied for her favouritism to Sarah Duchess of Marlborough, and you were right. But let us bear in mind, if we wind back, her predecessor, William III, was accused of both homosexuality, male favourites such as Bentink, plus uh, being an illegitimate ruler, you know. His predecessor, James II, James VII of Scotland, was accused of the kitchen sink, but including autocracy and Catholicism. Charles II was not exactly an exemplary moral figure. You know, you can go on and on and on. George I had his wife um, locked up and possibly, possibly, was complicit at the murder of his wife's lover. I mean, so in other words, I'm not sure that you should be arguing that it's simply women that that got criticized.
0: Yes, uh, well, uh, that, that, that's, a, that's and I could
1: go on. I could go on, you know. Well,
0: uh, someone uh, we, who, who was never accused of being a lesbian was, uh, was Queen Victoria. Um, how well did she uh, adapt the role as the perception of her as a, as a mother of the nation, a mother of empire? Uh, were there ways in which being a queen were an advantage to her during her long reign?
1: Yes, I think so. I mean, to my mind, uh, Queen Victoria um, revives the reputation of the British monarchy. She brings to a fulfilment the idea of the domestic monarchy, which had been very much endorsed by George III. Um, she rescues it from the rakishness of George the Fourth and the a degree of eccentricity of William IV. I think William is very interesting, but I think it's fair to say, well, we don't really have the time to discuss him. maybe we we'll discuss him on another occasion. But Victoria um, manages to ground the monarchy in a way that is acceptable to the broad range of her subjects. Now, of course, there are assassination attempts. I think there's about six against Queen Victoria. Um, the um, And there are Republicans. Um, uh, and of course, in Ireland, there are Fenians, uh, but the overwhelming majority of her, of her subjects, including her successful visits to, uh, to Dublin, which were very successful, um, see her in an extremely positive light. And I actually think that it's a very interesting uh, pattern that you can draw from Queen Victoria To the modern, uh, the next um, female sovereign, which is our current one, Her Majesty. And I think also, if you uh, want to think about it, Queen Victoria very much steadies the ship um, in in Britain. And that provides, I think, a a significant background to the ability of the um, established system. to uh, to you know, as it were, survive the storms of the nineteen teens. So I've got a positive view of Queen Victoria. I think um, she had irritations, and people didn't always find that she um, understood at once. Uh, what her ministers thought was her constitutional position but I think one has to accept that the constitution was more fluid than some of them thought and I I would also suggest that Gladstone was not always the easiest of people to get on with Um, but no I think uh, Victoria is very impressive and I think also she works well as a head of state for empire I mean, it's very interesting. Many years ago, I um, um, helped to write the script for the series of David Starkey programs on the monarchy uh, in the 18th and 19th century. And I remember I said to him that they needed to do... Uh, the one in the 19th century to start off the, after William Ford, the idea of Albert as king of of Britain and that was in a way trying to think about something different to offer the audience and Albert of course had a whole lot of very interesting uh, ideas in terms of renewal, in terms of reform, in terms of activist government in the mid uh, 19th century, and a, and a very impressive figure in many respects. Um, but I think in, I mean, obviously he died uh, in the uh, early 1860s, but I think in some respects he wasn't always as wise politically um, in the long term as Queen Victoria was. When we come to the Queen consorts of the
0: 20th century, um, Alex and, and- Mary, um, concerts of Edward the Seventh and George the Fifth, did they develop any distinctive role uh, themselves, or were they carrying on the sort of thing, you know, p- patronesses of charities and hospitals and, and good works and so on? Was that actually just something that had continued on for that the queens, queen consorts had been doing for certainly for a hundred years, maybe centuries?
1: Well, it was very much more in the public gaze. I mean, you have a society by uh, the period you're talking about of newspaper photographs, you have a society of the Pathé News, you have, you know, cinema newsreels. Um, So I think it's fair. And also you have a society, I mean, where the charitable role of the monarchy um, is adapting to a larger than ever in terms of population society than before. They're adapting to the mass male franchise and then the extension of the franchise to women as well. Um, they're adapting on a, to a society in which there is a working class political party, an explicitly working class political party in the case of the Labour Party, and a political party pledged to major constitutional change in the case of the Liberal Party. Um, so I don't think it's a sort of passive background in which they can just play lady bountiful and even before these strains of the, in which the first world war put paid to many traditional long established monarchies including obviously those of austria russia uh, germany and turkey uh, with of course uh, russia and germany allied dynastically very much to the british one there were already Um, changes prior to World War One. I mean, the uh, extinction of the Portuguese royal family, which had been one that was close to its uh, British counterpart. Um, So I think that um, one has to be cautious about assuming that it's an easy role. And of course, in the case of Queen Mary, there is also the need to navigate um, the fact that Britain has a war with Germany in World War One, in an astonishingly difficult war, um, and a war in which there is a degree of, of Germanophobia. So, no, I think they they both play an impressive role. I mean, obviously, uh, their role is less central than that of their husbands, but they both play an impressive role.
0: And as we come up to the modern day, I mean, you you drew a comparison with uh, what the stability that Victoria brought in her long reign and also the force for stability that the current Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, has uh, brought in her long reign as well. Is that the fundamental nature of of the current Queen's contribution to uh, British life, a a stabilising role? Or there are aspects of queenship that
1: she has uh, that, that are personal to her, that she is in, introduced to the role. Um, I suspect that an evaluation of Her Majesty will um, have to wait until um, the archives are open. Although, of course, uh, that won't stop lots of commentators rushing to comment uh, prior to that. Um, so, in a way. I think one has to give impressions. I mean, I, you know, I've only met the queen once, that's when I was given an honor. Uh, we had the brief conversation. Uh, she showed herself extraordinarily perceptive about what we were talking about, which was stamps, um, uh, because I got my honor for, for stamp design. Um, I think that you have got a situation in which the monarch is the most experienced politician in the country somebody who um, is able to uh, encompass uh, as head of state and as a working head of state a tremendous range of business of the state not just the formal business of government and the oversight of the political system but also the way in which the state involves by Uh, necessity, and by choice, a whole role, a whole range of voluntary and other activities. um, From religion, uh, the armed forces, um, charitable uh, institutions, uh, the Commonwealth, and so on and so forth. So I think um, you've got in the case of the present monarch, Somebody who is astonishingly hardworking, very shrewd, uh, very thoughtful, um, and actually has been um a tremendously impressive figure. Now, I think if you were monarch for a long time, and obviously this was also true of Queen Victoria, of Elizabeth I, of George the Third, you have longer. Uh, to get into the role and longer to make a success of it. And I think that's very much been the case of her present majesty. Um, There will obviously be um, uh, issues that will come up in the archives in which she expressed a point of view, I suspect, that she is probably keener on the Commonwealth than maybe some of her ministers. Uh, But on the other hand, that's her job. She is not just head of state of Britain, she is head of state um, of other countries as well. And that gives her a vantage point that maybe British commentators do not have. So no, I would uh, envisage and anticipate a very positive account of the Queen from historians Um, and you know uh, I think we've been jolly lucky that she's been the monarch for so long and has worked so incredibly hard at the role.
0: Well that's a very positive note to end on Professor Jeremy Black for taking us through the role of Queen's, Queen's in their own right and Queen's consort. Thank you very much indeed. A pleasure. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.